1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Jodie Dean and Adam Getachew. We spoke about Super Tuesday, Joe Biden's surprise comeback, and why Bernie Sanders supporters have reason not to feel too downcast. Jodie Dean teaches political, feminist and media theory in Geneva, New York. She's written many books, including The Communist Horizon, Crowds and Party, and her most recent book, Comrade an essay on political belonging. My second guest is Adam Getachew, who is the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science and the College at the University of Chicago. She holds a joint PhD in political science and African-American studies from Yale University and is the author of World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, which we discussed in episode 47. So we're speaking the day after Super Tuesday, and although Benny Sanders took California, the biggest prize uh, on offer on the night, the big story seems to be Joe Biden's comeback which encompassed not only sweeping the south where he was expected to do well including in Oklahoma where Sanders won in 2016 but also taking Minnesota, Massachusetts and and Maine. Is Joe Biden in your view now the the clear front runner in this race? And how disappointed do you think Sanders supporters ought to be today?
2: So, first yes, Biden's the front runner. The delegate count is not finalized yet from yesterday but we can expect that he's probably up between 40 and 60 delegates over Sanders. And so that's about a third of the delegates in and two thirds are out. So sure, in terms of the count, he's ahead. And in terms of a sense of possibility and momentum, Biden is ahead. I mean, it's it's really surprising. The election has dramatically changed in just the last few days. And, that's been pretty disappointing for Sanders supporters. I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat that. It's, um, it's a drag. On the other hand, the victory in California is immense. It's a very big deal. Sanders lost California to Hillary Clinton by 7% in 2016, and his campaign did an incredible amount of work out there really anchoring themselves organizationally in the Latin American community, or actually it's better to say Latin American communities, because they were really attentive to the differences among different Spanish-speaking people in California and different generations of Spanish-speaking people. So that victory is, is important and should not be underestimated. But I mean, it doesn't make up for the kind of news story about Biden taking so many states, particularly when um, he was not expected to do well. And so that's a little bit of a blow, but it's not, you know, the race is still going on. And the shakedown has been what last week was a race with five or six people now has really narrowed down to really two Plus Elizabeth Warren, who's essentially acting as um, a kind of progressive spoiler right now. But the change is, you know, three or four people are now out, depending on how you count it. But clearly Klobuchar, Buttigieg and Bloomberg, you know, they're now, you know, have all
1: quit their campaigns and are supporting Biden. Would you more or less agree with that analysis, Adam? Were you particularly shocked and surprised by, by Biden's comeback? And and do you think we perhaps should have been a little bit less naive in terms of, of what the Democratic Party is, is capable of doing when they perceive a real threat? And it does feel like this was very much a team effort. We see Buttigieg quit the campaign and Klobuchar as well and, and swing behind Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely was surprising. And I would say the biggest surprises were Texas, where... You know, the Sanders coalition, based on what Jody said around California, should have delivered a win, and he was favored to win going into the election. Another disappointment is Minnesota, a state he carried in 2016. Massachusetts, where I'm based right now, is another shocker, not because Sanders necessarily would have won, but, you know, going in, the race was a very tight one between Elizabeth Warren here and Sanders. So, those three especially, and then I would add Maine as well, the a fourth state, those feel especially sh- shocking and surprising. I do think the consolidation around Joe Biden as the centrist candidate has really transformed the landscape. I mean, Biden won in places where he had no ground game, was spending no money. In Virginia State, he carried, I think, I believe by more than 20 points, uh, maybe 30 points actually. He had one field office. so coming off of his South Carolina victory, which again was really big, and getting all of these centrists to back his campaign, to move out of the way to back him, I mean, gave him a ton of media momentum going into Super Tuesday. And another kind of indicator here is that For people who decided who they were going to vote for in the last day or two, Biden was by far the biggest victor among that cohort of voters. So it really mattered that the centrist consolidation over the last couple of days really mattered. But I think, you know, as Sanders supporters, we also have to be very clear eyed about some persistent limits of the Sanders coalition and the Sanders campaign so far. And I think the biggest one has been the campaign's inability to really win over a plurality, if not a majority, of Black voters. You know, we saw that very quickly in the South Carolina campaign. And over and over again, that has been repeated throughout the South. I mean, I think it is it is the case that he does better with younger Black voters, but There too, he lags behind his support for in other kind of millennial and Gen Z cohorts. So I think that's a really, you know, thing we have to think seriously about. I think a second thing, of course, is this is really turning out to be a generational divide and a generational fight. And Sanders lost huge in the 45 and above crowd. And, you know, if you look at turnouts or if you look at The proportion of voters by age. It's just the case that electorates tend to be older. And so young people who constitute really the backbone of the Sanders coalition tend to make up a smaller part of the electorates that showed up on Tuesday
1: on that point regarding black voters, what would you attribute Sanders's inability to cut through? Is your sense that it is quite a regionally specific problem, that it's it's a a problem in the South in a way that it might not be regarding black voters in other parts of the country? How would you explain it?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. It's true. I think it's important that we not talk in a sort of monolithic way about the black vote, a black vote, the, the firewall of the democratic party, et cetera, all these, all these languages that have emerged in one, we have to think seriously about the specificity of black voters in the South and, and their reasons. But I think we also have to think generally about how, say for instance, the biggest concern of democratic primary voters has been persistently the question of electability and defeating Donald Trump so there's a way in which, for instance, and this, this, this is especially the true for African-American voters for whom the kind of racism of Donald Trump seems such a big concern. And so, you know, these questions about whatever we might, I might think about who's more electable, the, the sense in which a kind of less risky choice, a more kind of familiar choice a choice that has a longstanding, you know, relationship, say, with Black voters, especially vis-a-vis the Obama administration, seems like a, a safer bet. You know, I think this is a conversation I had with my parents going into the vote. They voted in Virginia. So I think that definitely plays a role. You know, two, I think the support of elected Black elected officials has proved to be very important. I mean, Jim Clyburn, Congressman from South Carolina, made his announcement just days before the South Carolina race. And that was a race that Biden was likely going to win regardless of that endorsement. But I do think it can galvanized and consolidated his support. So I think this is this is a real challenge. I mean, I feel like a lot of black, Activists, organizers who come out of the movement for Black Lives have largely supported either Warren or Sanders in the race. But Black elected officials in Congress and in state legislatures have tended to support either Biden and sometimes Bloomberg. So I think the effects of those, the network effects of that, those kinds of endorsements play a really big role as well.
1: Jodie, going back to your point regarding Elizabeth Warren as as this, as as you say, a progressive spoiler candidate, given the extent to which Warren draws her support from college educated professionals as as compared with Sanders' more working class base, is it entirely obvious that her voters would back Sanders if she were to withdraw and and might perhaps a significant portion of her vote go to Biden instead, especially as there's the question of whether she might even endorse Biden since she, of course, endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016?
2: It's hard to predict. She is tried to self-describe and position herself as a progressive, particularly in the beginning of the campaign. She was presenting herself as much more someone who is allied with the same kinds of concerns as Bernie Sanders, particularly until she backtracked on Medicare for All and kind of undermined her own position there. But she's tried to position herself as someone who has taken on big banks and corporate interest, who comes from a working class family, who knows the lives of teachers, who cares about the environment and has a plan for that. So at least in terms of her presentation throughout most of the campaign, Elizabeth Warren has tried to represent herself as a progressive. In the last you know, six weeks or month, that seems like that's changed a lot. And her background as a Republican is showing its face, and perhaps her prior connection or prior alliance with Hillary Clinton is showing its face. So I think it's not clear that all of her supporters would go with Sanders, but it would Clearly, be the case that Sanders is the only person in the progressive lane, rather than someone who's you know veering between the progressive and the center lanes.
1: In terms of your sort of estimation of Elizabeth Warren, do you think she is likely to withdraw? Because obviously, we've heard this talk from her campaign that um, she might see it out until the convention, and there's this idea, which seems pretty fanciful, really, that she would become the unity candidate as opposed to Biden or Sanders.
2: I have to say, I find it hard to swallow that she will stay in another couple of days considering the humiliation of the loss in Massachusetts. I just find that it should be really, it should hurt. That should be a painful loss. And if she stays in given that and that she has no path forward, I think it's really clear that she's only in there as a spoiler because she has no chance. And I think that that will show whether or not she actually is some version of a progressive or whether she's, you know, marching in lockstep with the rest of the Democratic Party elite.
1: Regarding the candidacy of Joe Biden, I've heard it said on the left, and, and it's a view that I've held myself, I suppose, that however much we may have seen Hillary Clinton as a, as a weak candidate in, in, in various uh, quite quite obvious ways, she did seem to have you know a, a, a kind of competence, there was a degree of enthusiasm about her that, that seems to be absent from Biden. but uh, are we perhaps missing some advantages that Biden does have, and in particular this kind of not something I see particularly myself, but this idea of him having this this sort of common touch, this folksy charm, and the fact that whatever everyone can say about Joe Biden he's clearly not a slick politician. What's your view on that adam?
0: Well, I think he you know right now he has a bunch of advantages I think that have a lot to do with. The narrative of momentum you know this is a candidate a week and a half ago that everyone had thought had really crashed and was basically picking up the pieces so i think the biggest advantage he has and is this sense of momentum and it's not one honestly that you know um sanders has struggled to have a narrative of momentum perhaps a a kind of outside of the, the big victory in in nevada California would have done that but given everything else it's hard to imagine. So I would say that you know I think one thing it may be true that people find him charming or or folksy as you put it but it's also you know he's a candidate who people have no, you can't really say what he's in this for. I mean, his biggest selling point so far, as he's put it, is a kind of continuation of the Obama years and as an extension of that administration. And it's true that people have very strong positive associations with the Obama presidency, especially because it was followed up with the Trump administration. And so I think you've seen him leverage that in a, in a great deal of ways. But you know a lot remains to be seen about when what happens when he becomes the focus of you know the sanders campaign what happens when he has to actually articulate what he stands for and that's not something he's had to do actually because he hasn't been sort of targeted in the same way as the centrist front runner i mean it, the thing that's also interesting is that into the summer, everyone kind of thought this would be the race we were going to be in. Or at the very least, Biden would be the person to beat. But so far, the campaign, the you know, the, the character of the race so far hasn't meant that he's been scrutinized on those terms. We got a little taste of that right before Iowa, when there was discussions about his having backed social security cuts. I imagine we will see more of that. But the question is, how much does the absence of substance and the ways that he's deeply tied with very unpopular positions not just cutting social security but the Iraq war how much tying him to those policies will also make voters doubtful versus how much the kind of momentum the consolidation going forward will will kind of counteract those negative signs
1: Jody, would you regard Biden as, as, as essentially a, a weak candidate, or someone that perhaps we have that we have underestimated? Because I think seeing Biden from the left, it's it's very easy to see the flaws and to see all the problems with him. But obviously, we are not the uh, typical voter necessarily.
2: I think he's an appallingly weak candidate on so many grounds. So Adam you know, rightly pointed out his past political positions, particularly wanting to cut Social Security, the Iraq War. We can all also mention his role in the Anita Hill hearings, his consistent work with Republicans on Republican policies. I mean, he's not a good guy in terms of the policies that he supports. His ranking on climate from Greenpeace is like a D minus or something like that. And if we then think about the Obama era deportations, you know, this is also not, it's, it's not good, and so I think on in terms of those policies, he's a terrible candidate. In terms of the kind of strange stuff, the barisma and Hunter Biden deal making that the Republicans are going to emphasize, or that Trump is going to emphasize, that kind of cor- the sort of corruption narrative, he's not in a good position. So I don't think he's going to win on that. I mean, I don't think he he's got a good case on that. So then why you know why does he seem to have a little bit of momentum right now? I think that. Some of it is that people like thinking that everything will be okay if Trump is gone, that it's not like we face huge, horrible structural problems, but that Trump is the only locus of all problems in the country. And if he's gone, it can be okay and it can be back to normal and that, that Joe Biden represents back to normal. And even if our back to normal is kind of one step towards senility, people are okay with that, right? It's almost like, like Biden, we could say, kind of represents how people think of themselves and their country. And we might be completely inept and unqualified and not well-spoken, but but we're not Trump. And it just seems like that's the whole thing. And that not everyone, and maybe not even a majority will ever be persuaded that the way to change is revolutionary and that we have to make massive changes if we're going to address the climate tr- crisis. We have to accept higher taxes if we are going to have health care for all, if we're going to guarantee it as a human right, that we're going to have to change our structure of how we consume, if we are going to actually have free education and free early child care you know, education, for university education and free early child care education, that people might not be willing yet to say, "Okay, I'm willing to do it out so that everyone else can do more, or I'm willing to look at our society in terms of a fight that we have to struggle for and win. I mean, the Sanders message is a message that says we pull together and fight for a better world. And the Biden message is one that says, you know what, if we get rid of Trump, our world's going to be just fine. And that's a little bit more reassuring to a lot of people, even as it's a total pipe dream and fantasy.
1: Would both of you regard it as pretty much a given that Biden would lose to Trump in the general election?
0: You know, I, I agree with Jody. I think he would be a very, very weak candidate in November. Say there's been a lot of conversation about the states in the Midwest that Hillary Clinton lost, but Democrats normally win, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And this is a candidate, Biden's a candidate deeply associated with every free trade agreement from NAFTA on. You know, he has a connection, of course, to Pennsylvania, but this will be something I think that trump will use to his advantage as he did with hillary clinton amongst those voters i think though i would say it's really hard to tell what's going to be in happen in november and i think so much of the democrats chances actually depend in part on how the economy will look you know we've seen the beginnings of a downturn and you could imagine that if there the downturn is deep and significant enough that a Democrat might be able to win and even a weak candidate might be able to win in that context. But it does, it then leaves you with the question of, well, insofar as this isn't just a question of getting Trump out, but addressing these huge questions before us around climate change, Deep forms of inequality, we will not be well positioned to do that work in in that context. So it's hard to say. I think we're really far out from November, but I don't think he gives us the best, you know, chances for victory, the best chances for building a coalition of people to fight on all these issues. I want to say one other thing about his weakness, which is Jamal Bowie, who writes in the New York Times, had this analogized Biden as a candidate to the and this race in part to the Virginia gubernatorial race in 2017, where a similarly weak, not well-positioned candidate, Ralph Northam, ended up becoming the nominee. I mean, in that case, he did go on to win, but I think there's... there. There's something very similar about them both being these candidates who are do not challenge the status quo, are reassuring to voters. And I think it, it sort of resonates well with what Jody is saying about why it is that people might find that an attra- an attractive option.
2: I'm certain Biden will lose. And the reason is, I mean, here, but let me tell you, I should qualify that because uh, in 2016, the night before the election, my 18 year old daughter called me. In tears, just worried to death, and I promised her that Trump would lose. So that's how worthwhile my predictions are. I <laughs> no possible way that Trump is going to win. <laughs> so with the same amount of confidence, I say there's no possible way that Biden will win. And the reason I say that is because he represents the same kind of politics that the Democrats pursued in 2016 and that Trump defeated in 2016, and that is a politics that is around a particular kind of cautious corporate elite that tries to talk a semi-inclusive game but does that to pursue its own interest and basically presents itself as a status quo. And Trump ran against the status quo. And his voters are people who are sick and tired of the status quo. So it's not like those voters are going to feel in any way attracted to a campaign like Biden's. Second of all, it's going to be the case that a lot of the high energy progressives who've really mobilized in the movement around Bernie Sanders will sit it out and that's going to, co- that's going to have a cost. So I think he's, that Biden's not going to win over people who went to Trump, um, because they were fed up. And he's not going to keep the mobilized progressives who have galvanized around Sa- Sanders.
1: And so the left will get the blame for Biden's loss, potentially.
2: Yeah, potentially, but we get the blame for anything. So I'm <laughs> not, I'm not really worried about that. I mean, right? Like, it was absurd for the Clinton administration to blame Bernie Sanders on her loss. Not Clinton administration for the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton still to blame Bernie Sanders for her loss. She lost because she was a terrible candidate, and they shouldn't have blamed Jill Stein. I mean, if she couldn't get out the, her voters, that's why she lost. So I think that I, I think it's we should not expect Biden to win.
1: Just regarding the general state of the American left. So in the UK, following the 2017 general election, th- there was a long period of time where it seemed reasonable to suppose that the Labour Party would win the next election and we, we would be looking at a, a, at a radical Labour government. But I think on, on a lot of the left, there was a rec- recognition that the left wasn't really in the position it needed to be in to succeed in, in government. And clearly at the moment, every one of our sort of political persuasion is, is, is rooting for Sanders and, and rooting for the left to, to win. Um, but, but is there a question of whether, were Sanders to win, whether it would be a, a victory too soon, and that perhaps in particular because of the, the, the just sort of awful and, and apocalyptic situation regarding the climate, we feel that we have to win and we have to win right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, you know a big question and a part of the reason that the kind of standard bearer for the American left is a seventy-year-old white guy right now is because the bench is not deep, right? We, we, you know, we have, we are. I think we're in a better position now than we were in two thousand sixteen. A lot of elected officials, including most prominently Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, have come into the forefront to kind of step into those vacuums but there is a real question about building out a movement that has people in elected holding elected office but that's not limited to that now i think you know you work within the conditions you're given right you, you don't you don't get to choose the conditions and this these are the conditions we have right so i think for me just as was the case in 2016 you see the sanders campaign as the A kind of a space of generating new kinds of political leaders as a space of transforming the conversation. We didn't mention this earlier in our sort of just reflections on last night, but I think in the 12 states where there was kind of exit polling around whether people wanted public insurance, uh, Medicare for all that position won in every state in which that question was asked. And sometimes by big margins in, you know, in a state like Texas, over 60%, but across the board, that position won. When you ask people about their views on the, you know, how favorably they view the word socialism, again, on almost every state, that socialism has a more favorable view than an unfavorable view. So I think... This is a tra- I think this is a huge transformation of the public conversation in this country. I don't think the Democratic Party as a whole, and especially the centrist leadership of the depart- party, has recognized that, has digested that, but I think very quickly they will have to do that. So I think you know a Sanders uh, nomination and a Sanders victory in November would only kind of further galvanize the conditions that have already made these transformations possible. I think we will continue to see different kinds of people stand for office. I think there were really inspiring candidates in Texas, for instance, running for congressional seats. One of them was a 26-year-old, Jessica Cisneros, who ended up losing her race. But I think, you know, there's another candidate, uh, two other candidates, one of whom did win. But I, I think these are new spaces have been created to contest the Democratic Party from within and to create the conditions for challenging it from without as well.
1: Jody, I read a post that you made on social media today, which very much fits with Adam's uh, analysis there in terms of the the election opening up a, up a space of learning and where, where we're able to mobilise a, a greater part of the population and develop new activists and new leaders and so on. But just on that point that Adam makes about the Democrats digesting this change in orientation and this this general shift to the left amongst the the American population I mean do you think that is something that we're going to see at some point because again I think from from the UK standpoint I think some of us have been surprised the extent to which the old regime has remained enthralled to the to the old uh, shibboleths uh, so to speak
2: Both have to be true right so the old guard holds on to its position and its you know the kind of power that it has been able to create for itself in its institutions like the Labour Party or the Democratic Party and then the you know young turks or resistance or next generation or further left people come and fight for their terrains. So I think that that it's not one thing or the other. That they you know that those are forces that go against each other. I mean, it might have been too optimistic for Corbyn's supporters to think that the. Kind of Blair wing of the party wouldn't do everything that it could to undermine Jeremy Corbyn in the same way that it never ceases to amaze many of us on the left in the US how far the Democratic Party will go to block Sanders. You know, on the one hand, we know this intellectually, and then Sanders starts to do well and we get our hopes up, and then the full forces of the Democratic establishment pull themselves together and push back again. So I think we we have to think in terms of both of them will keep going. Um, and earlier you asked about, you know, the time, is it too soon in a way for Sanders and and I'd want to say I think I'm, you know, the politic the temporalities of politics are always too early or too late, right? They're never ever going to be just right. And it is about kind of creating the moment, seizing the moment, because there's not going to be a guarantee. It's not going to be one where it's going to be, oh, clearly all the circumstances are exactly right and now you win. No, it's always too soon or too late. So I think, you know, we need to to keep that in
1: mind. And in terms of that point about the Democrats just raising heaven and earth to block Sanders from from winning and, and from taking the nomination. So, I mean, there seems to be a pretty good chance that we could head into the Milwaukee convention without any candidate having an outright majority. Does Sanders need an outright majority to 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 win the nomination? And if he doesn't get that, is is it effectively going to be given to to Biden? And if that were the case, how damaging would that be for Biden's campaign in the presidential election against Trump?
0: Yeah, I just wanted to say I liked Jody's formulation of it's both uh, too soon and and too late and in some ways i mean this is a moment when it is both at the same time right it is almost too late for our planet and too soon in terms of our ability to have all our forces put together you know i will say that my hope about yesterday was would be that you know we come out of that looking like the clear clear front runners with a sort of insurmountable lead and Why I thought that is because I think it makes it harder for the party establishment to deny him the nomination if he had an outright majority going into the convention. But I think a situation in which the person with the plurality of the votes does not get the nomination is going to be a a really big problem for the Democratic Party in terms of voter enthusiasm that Jody was talking about. I think the people that Sanders' campaign has have galvanized are not going to feel like going along with a program that has been foisted on them, right? And so I think, I don't know what the party will do, but it is, it is very likely that there won't be an outright majority by the time we get to the convention. And a sense in which the kind of process has been rigged in favor of, of the centrist candidate or the establishment's choice will really do a lot, I think, to demobilize excitement enthusiasm in the process going into November.
2: I just want to say I think that's a that's a really, really important point, right? How the process is carried out. Does it seem rigged? Does it seem fair? I think that can easily be underestimated, but it's huge, right? The more we have images, um, like we did out of California and Texas where, you know, there are lines and people waiting seven hours and four hours to get to vote where we know that more and more voting areas have been shut down or closed down. I mean, those kinds of features of the U.S., and I say features because they're not bugs, they're features of the U.S. electoral system, undermine everyone's confidence in its fairness. And the more undermined it is, the less legitimacy the candidate who comes out of that process will have. So that's also something I think that's, you know, I agree with Adam on that. That's going to play a huge role.
1: Yes. And I suppose Biden not a candidate who it's difficult to portray as, as corrupt if one wants to do so. And we can expect Donald Trump to do that heavily. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm just going to ask if you've got any, any final uh, reflections.
0: Yeah, I mean I would say so this campaign for me started with making calls in Iowa and there I was calling Ethiopian workers at a slaughterhouse. My family's Ethiopian and so I was speaking to them in Amharic. And I just I bring that up because they were the first they got to participate in a in a satellite caucus that voted early so there had been these satellite caucuses to accommodate people who worked you know night shifts and so forth and so they were the first people to vote and voted overwhelmingly for for Sanders. So I think there will be a lot of reflection about the limits of the Sanders coalition and I do think as supporters we have to think seriously about how we might reach new people, how we might tailor the messages we have, knowing that we have already proven that the policies we stand for are policies that lots of people in this country believe in. So I bring this uh, kind of anecdote up from earlier, just to say that the kind of ways in which the campaign has energized a whole new set of voters who are immigrants, who are young people, who are Latino voters, I don't think that should be underestimated. And I think also that we should really, feel, I don't know, as people who've participated in the campaign, feel really proud of that work and build on it and, and not treat this moment as a kind of moment of a defeat, but in a moment of to reorient ourselves, to, to look out. For, there's still 30 plus, you know, 30, more than 30 states to go. We have a long way forward. And so I think it's, a re- it's an opportunity to build on the strengths of the campaign so far.
2: But I thought Adam's points there were great. I really like the way that she said just think about this as a moment and it's a moment in a much longer and l- larger struggle and you know at this moment more people have been galvanized and brought in and that's important and I also think you know elections are means campaigns are means they are not the end and you know for many of us on the left, the very thought that we will have the kind of social change that we need come about through an election is not something that we think, right? We think that elections are just training grounds, opportunities to get a message out, to learn the skills that we need to connect with people, but that ultimately the social change that we need is going to require something much more than elections. And so I think we need to keep that in mind as well.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.